In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. The uh, markets finished the week on a down note or actually on an up note. In a down week, this was the first week, I think, in the past three where the markets were down. Uh, the Dow, though, ended up with a 260-point gain on the day. Uh, you know, the markets continued to ignore all of the weak economic data. We got more weak economic data out today, again, even weaker uh, than everybody expects. But nobody really cares at this point about the data or how weak it is because they simply attribute it all to the coronavirus. It's a self-inflicted wound, uh, forgetting about the fact that we were actually wounded anyway. I mean, people don't appreciate the problems that the U.S. economy had, uh, the very uh, deep-seated uh, structural problems that lay beneath that bubble that people still haven't come to terms with. They're still focusing on uh, the effects of the, the coronavirus and not realizing that the economy was very sick long before we got infected with the coronavirus. Now, the gold market continues to inch higher. Gold uh, corrected a bit today, but the gold stocks continue to move higher. They had another positive day today. They are leading the way I spoke extensively about the mining sector on the podcast that I did on Wednesday. Uh, so no real reason to get into it today, other than the fact that, you know, I mentioned on that podcast that there's really no coverage of it. And, you know, there is some I mean, you do see some of these shows where someone will come on 
and will recommend a gold stock uh, kind of as a, you know, something to do or point out that gold stocks are doing well. But really, the coverage is still extremely minimal compared to what it should be. Because after all, we are creating massive inflation. I mean, inflation like we've never seen before. Look at the, the numbers. The national debt, it was just two weeks ago that the national debt hit $24 trillion. It's now over $24.6 trillion. We've gained $600 billion in debt or added $600 billion in two weeks. I mean, if you look at that pace, the national debt is now growing by $1 trillion a month. $1 trillion a month. I mean, the whole national debt didn't even hit a trillion until I think it was October of 1981. So Ronald Reagan had been newly elected president, and it was in Reagan's first term, early in his first term, that we first got a national debt that was $1 trillion. Now we're adding $1 trillion in a month. Now, obviously, I mean, this pace is not sustainable. I mean, if we do this every month, we're adding, what, you know, $12 trillion a year to the national debt. I mean, there's no way that that could possibly happen, right, without a massive crisis. I mean, Reagan was worried about the debt before it got to a trillion. That was a big campaign issue against Jimmy Carter that, you know, he was running up the deficit. Of course, Reagan proceeded to run the deficits even larger, which is what always happens. You get Republicans that campaign against Democrats because the debts are big, and then they get into office and they run them up even more. Except now, nobody even cares. I don't think there's any Republicans who even give a damn about the debt. I mean, President Trump today signed that new uh, stimulus bill. It's almost half a trillion dollars. That's just another $500 billion or whatever it was, $484 billion. Uh, no one cares where the money's coming from. I mean, I keep hearing, even the Republicans, when people are asked about all this government spending, and they kind of compare it to uh, what happened after the financial crisis in 08. And they try to claim there is a difference between the bailouts back then and the bailouts now, because they're saying, you know, back then there were bad actors. There were people who were too aggressive with their loans or uh, banks that were loaded up on subprime. And, and, and so they, they say that we were bailing out people who should have, suffered the consequences of their bad decisions. But now, you know, nobody did anything wrong. It's not anybody's fault that we have the coronavirus or that we have these shutdowns. And so therefore the bailouts are okay because we're bailing out people who weren't responsible. Now, uh, first of all, I mean, I don't believe that that is the case because people chose to put themselves in a position of massive debt right? Companies could have been a lot more responsible over the years. They didn't have to buy back as much stock. They could have kept more cash. The same thing with individuals. They didn't need uh, to uh, take out mortgages, seconds on their homes and uh, buy new cars every few years and max out their credit cards. People made decisions uh, to you know live paycheck to paycheck. Now, I get it. The government uh, made it uh, not only more enticing and more accessible by keeping interest rates artificially low, but I know that taxes are high. And so a lot of families are struggling because of high taxes. 
And the only way they, they can make ends meet is through debt, you know, which is the big irony because you've got so many people now talking about why we need government, right? See, this is why we need big government because the free market can't handle uh, something like this, right? When you have a big crisis like this coronavirus and everybody is staying home and all these businesses are in trouble, we need the government. See, this is proof, right? That see, capitalism can't handle this on its own. We need government support. But of course, you know, now that you're acknowledging and even the people who think that they're capitalists or say they believe in capitalism, but are also justifying these bailouts, what they don't even realize they're doing is undermining capitalism and they are making an argument for socialism. Because if we're all going to agree that when bad things happen, it's up to the government to bail everybody out, that nobody is responsible for saving for a rainy day, that we can all live on the edge and just knowing whenever anything bad happens, the government steps in, right? If we are going to accept that as the new reality, then we also have to accept the new reality that we can't have socialized losses and private gains. We need to socialize the gains too. I mean, you have to be logically consistent, right? I think it's wrong. I don't think two wrongs make a right, but I know what's going to happen assuming we ever get out of this recession, which is a big assumption. But even if we don't, there is going to be a movement to heavily increase taxes on corporations, on businesses, on higher income people at a minimum. After all, they all got bailed out. Look, I, you know, I just read some story about some you know guy with a hotel. Uh, he got maybe $60 billion, 50, 60 billion in bailout money for several hotels that, that he owns. I mean, you have all these wealthy people and Fortune 500 companies getting government bailout money when times are bad. Well, they have to pay up when times are good, right? If the politicians are now going to argue for bigger government and more taxes to fund all the rescue efforts, right? If you admit that we need big government to bail everybody out, well, then how do we pay for that big government? We need higher taxes. No one is talking about higher taxes now because it's supposedly a recession. But at some point, there's going to have to be a bill other than just inflation where we're going to be having much, much higher taxes uh, in order to support a much bigger government that is in the position to bail people out when they get in trouble. But here is the reality. If it wasn't for big government, nobody would need big government to bail them out. That is the biggest irony. Why is the economy so vulnerable? Why is everybody living paycheck to paycheck? Why does nobody have savings? That's because of big government. If we had smaller government, like, like we did leading up to the Second World War, like we talked about a lot on the podcast, if we had lower income taxes, or better still, we had no income tax at all. Right? If corporations weren't paying income taxes, if their shareholders and their employees weren't paying income taxes, right, they would have more income. So they wouldn't need to borrow as much money uh, to buy the things that they need because they would have all their earnings. They, they're, 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 they would take home what they earn. Right? They wouldn't be giving all this money to the government. Right? If we didn't have Social Security, if we didn't have payroll taxes, if uh, people were not dependent on government, for their savings, they would have more savings on their own. If they weren't having all this money taken from their from their paychecks, they could have saved that money. They would have that money that they could tap into. Everybody would have a lot more savings if we were paying less in taxes. And if the Federal Reserve had interest rates 
at a normal level, if the market was setting interest rates and not the government, rates would have been much higher over the last you know, generation or two. Well, what would that mean? That would mean fewer people would be borrowing money for consumption and more people would be saving and their savings would be earning interest, right? So not only would they be encouraged to save, but their savings would be compounding because of interest. So if we had a small government that didn't tax everybody so much and we had sound money so that more people saved, the economy would be perfectly positioned and perfectly capable of weathering any economic storm, no matter how bad, without anybody getting a bailout or a stimulus check or anything for the government. But because the government is so big and taxes and regulates so much, and because we have this central bank that is monetizing all this debt, we have created this bubble economy where nobody is saving and it's all built on a mountain of debt. And so now when we get hit with a downturn, they say, you see, capitalism doesn't work. Everybody needs to be bailed out. We need more big government. And now we need even higher taxes in the future to pay for this government. Look, it's the government that crippled the economy in the first place. The solution, right, the answer to that is not to have a bigger government crutch. Oh, the government crippled us. So now we need another government crutch so that we can hobble around. How about getting rid of all that government, right? Liberating the economy from the dead weight of government, shrinking government, making government smaller now so that we can lower taxes so that people won't need bailouts in the future. And let's not prop up companies that should fail. The reason that companies that should have gone out of business years ago are still in business is because they were able to borrow more money to stay in business. They should have gone out of business years ago. They wouldn't be in trouble now because they would already be gone. But because we kept so many companies in business that should have failed, a lot of companies that might have had decent profits don't have those profits because they're competing unfairly with companies that are being kept afloat uh, by government debt. So now those companies didn't have the reserves to weather this storm. So the only reason that the economy is so vulnerable to this collapse is because of government in the past. The solution is not, well, we need bigger government, but that's the solution that everybody comes to, right? Because they see that we need these bailouts, but they don't even realize that there is no money. The government doesn't have any money to bail anybody out. The government's not sitting on a pile of money. All it can do is create, print money, right? But that doesn't do anything. If it did, we wouldn't have to wait for an emergency. If printing money really added value, then we would do it all the time. Why would we even have taxes? Just run the printing press and give everybody money. You know, we don't do that during good times. We shouldn't do it during bad times either. In fact, it's even more destructive when you do it during bad times than when you do it during good times. And we're about to find that out. But all we're doing is stealing the purchasing power of the people that have it and spending it into, into circulation. So we're, we're taking everybody's wealth. Inflation is going to run rampant. I mean, yes, I know people are saying, oh, but that's what you said before, Peter. Yes, I know I said that before. And yes, the inflation mainly manifests itself in financial assets. Okay, right? But now it's going to show up in consumer goods. And the fact that we dodged that bullet last time doesn't mean we're dodging it again. I mean, now it's impossible. In fact, we dodged the bullet, but we ended up stepping on a landmine that's going to do far more damage uh, than that bullet. But also, you know, continuing on the topic 
of the debt and what is going on here. So I just read a, a, uh, a, a note today from the uh, Congressional Budget Office, and they're now officially estimating that the, the deficit for this fiscal year, the budget deficit, is going to be $3.7 trillion in one year, $3.7 trillion. And that's the official estimate. Remember, the official estimate is not nearly as bad as the actual borrowing because they don't count any of the off-budget stuff. So if they're saying that the official deficit is going to be $3.7 trillion, that means the national debt will probably grow by $4.5 trillion. Who knows? Maybe $5 trillion. I mean, this is a crazy amount of money. Uh, and, and, of course, it's probably going to be worse than they think because we're not going to get the recovery in the back end of the year. I mean, yeah, we might get a snapback in economic activity from how bad everything is in the second or third quarter, but not nearly what they what what, what people think. In fact, I looked at, um, you know, I talked about this on my last podcast, but uh, somebody tweeted this out. I forget who it was. I retweeted it. Um, but it was like a, a survey, a poll that they took of people. And the questions were, okay, once the economy reopens, um, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to fly on a plane? Are you going to go to a restaurant? Are you going to go to gym? And if you look at the answers, nobody wanted to do anything. Maybe like 10 or 15% of the people were saying, yeah, I'll, I'll get on a plane, even if they're, even if I'm allowed to fly, or even if everything is open back up, uh, I'll get on a plane or I'll, I'll go out. So nobody is going to make a big rush to come back. Yes, some people will come back, but not nearly enough. We are still going to be in recession. The economy is going to be much smaller, the GDP, at the end of this year than when the year began. And then I think we're going to have another contraction in, in 2021. So yes, we'll, we'll have some kind of a bounce back from the depths of this uh, first year of this depression, but this is going to continue. And so as long as the recession continues, not only are all these government stabilizers there, not only is all this extra unemployment benefits and all this stuff they're doing, but they're going to keep coming out with one stimulus after another. Because the longer the economy is weak, the more the government feels uh, the pressure to do something about it. And so if we never get out of the recession, then we keep getting another stimulus. But if the stimulus are actually a sedative, which is really what they are, the more they stimulate the economy, the more they sedate it. And so the worse the economy gets because of the stimulus, the more stimulus that we get. And so we never get out of this trap. And of course, once it really starts producing price inflation, right? Once consumer prices really start to rise, which is going to happen. I mean, maybe it won't happen until 2021. Who knows what is going to happen? But when it does, then there's going to be even greater calls for stimulus because now they're going to say, oh, we really need to give people money because look how expensive things are. Look how much people are paying for food. Look how much, you know, all these, you know, living expenses are. Everybody needs a raise. And then they're, oh, we need to raise the minimum wage because you can't live on these low wages. In fact, you got all these people now. I read this article. I put it up too on my sites. This woman who had, a, I think it was a restaurant or some kind of business, but she got one of her, her PPP loans. And so she called her employees who wanted to go back to work. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? We don't want to work. We're getting paid twice as much not to work. Why are you trying to get us back to work? You know, we're, we're making all this money not working. Now, who knows what's going to happen in those situations? I bet what's going to end up happening is, uh, you know, people are going to stay unemployed, but maybe they'll work off the books if they even want to work. But, 
you know, how, how do you entice people back to work? Now, there are people who say, well, but if they get their jobs offered back, you know, then they're not unemployed. They won't get the benefits. Sure they will. Because you could claim that you're sick. You could claim that you're taking care of a sick relative or you got kids that aren't in school. You know, you have all these extended benefits now where you can be unemployed uh, because of those circumstances. You've got to watch your kids or you've got to take care of somebody who's sick. Or I'm even sure that that people could be worried. I mean, what is the liability to these employers? What if you require your employer to your employee to come back to work and then they get the coronavirus? Are they going to sue you? I mean, there's a lot of legal liability for employers. If you tell somebody, no, you got to come to work. And they said, look, I really don't want to come. I'm worried about getting the virus. Oh, you got to come or you're fired. And then you show up and you get sick. I mean, there's tremendous amount of risk now to trying to restart these businesses during during this environment. So we're not going to get a recovery in the economy. right? We're going to be in this depression for a long time. So these deficits are going to be much bigger than they think because they are assuming that they're going to come down when the economy improves, but it's not going to happen. They're going to keep coming up with more fresh stimulus bills as we don't get out of this. And of course, if Trump does not get reelected, which you know I think the odds are that he won't, what do you think the first thing that a Biden administration is going to do? Massive government spending. I mean, even if they have some tax increases for the rich, which they'll probably throw in there for good measure, right? There's not going to be that many rich people left anyway to pay the taxes. Uh, but it's going to be huge new government spending programs, bigger than the government spending programs that we already have. And there's going to be no opposition to them. So these numbers are, are, are lowball estimates, even though they're so high. So obviously, we're going to have a sovereign debt crisis. We're going to have a dollar crisis. Uh, gold is already telling you that. It hasn't broken out yet. Are we over you know, 1800 No. I mean, we're still around 1720 1730 in the price of gold. But look, every day I look at it, and it's like, oh, all right, it's not up 100 or $200 today. We'll see if it's up there tomorrow. At some point, it is just going to explode higher. I don't know what that point is going to be. Uh, but it's going to happen. And at some point, the dollar is going to break. Everybody assumes the dollar is going to go up because of this dollar shortage or flight to quality or somehow we're the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper. But look, one of these days, that dollar is going to crack. It's going to crack hard. It's going to fall and it's not going to stop. Right. It's going to look like crude oil when it went to negative $40 a barrel. But you want to make sure that you are not in dollars, that you are not in U.S. financial markets when that happens. And one more thing too, I want to talk about before I get to some of these questions, I have another list of questions. I, I went over them last week. And so I don't have quite as many uh, this time. So hopefully it won't take me as long to, uh, to get through it. But I was thinking about how um, the coronavirus may really impact uh, people's lives. You know, once, you know, once the government says that, you know, we, we can go back to work, or once the governments or all the local governments, how how different I think things are going to be. Because I think that a lot has changed, whether people want to admit it or not. Uh, but I think that one thing is going to happen, uh, or a couple things are going to happen, but one related to work. I think a lot more people are going to be working from home for all sorts of reasons. I think employers are going to think that, you know, it makes sense to have a workforce at home because now if we get some of these orders where people can't go to work, it's not as disruptive. I mean, let's set up all our employees so they can work from home. I think it also 
lessens their legal liability because if one of your workers is sick and infects another worker and you've got all kinds of issues, not only do you now have more sick workers, uh, which is going to hurt you, uh, but you have potential legal exposure. So I think a lot of businesses are going to have more of their employees working from home uh, than they did before. I mean, obviously not everybody is going to work from home, but I think you're going to have a significant increase in the percentage of the working population that is working from home. And I think that that that, that has a lot of implications for the economy. Because first of all, that means that the commercial office market is in trouble because there's already a glut of commercial space, especially with, you know, we work bankrupt and all that space on the market. You have a lot of commercial real estate that is going to be for rent, for sublease. So this is going to be a big, big deal. And there is a lot of debt related to commercial real estate. And a lot of that debt is going to go bad. A lot of these loans are going to default. That means the banks are going to lose a lot of money when the commercial real estate market crashes. And that is what is going to happen. But it's not just commercial real estate. It is the retail space, the malls and the shopping centers. See, these companies were already in trouble, right? Amazon, plus the fact that people were just broke anyway. They had so much debt uh, that they were just, you know, trying to get the best deals they could and they could get a better deal on Amazon. So you already had a lot of the big, uh, you know, brick and mortar uh, retailers that were just hanging on by a thread. Well, they don't have that thread anymore. So a lot of these uh, retail outlets that are now closed down, they're never going to open back up. I mean, they, you know, they probably should have closed a couple of years ago anyway, but they were hanging on, they were hoping, they still had credit. Well, that's it, that's gone. And so not only is commercial real estate going to crash, but the, the shopping centers, right? All that, strip malls, all, all this. And there's massive debt associated with all this real estate that is going to lose tremendous value. And that's before interest rates start to move up, which inflation eventually is going to push rates up. But this is a big crash in, in, in real estate. But also, if you think about it, let's just say that there's a lot of people that used to work um, in offices, and now they're, they're working from home. That has big implications for the residential market. See, a lot of people right now want to live in a big city because that's where they work. They want to be close to their job. They want they don't want to have to commute. Some people, they have families. They want to have a little bit of a, you know, they don't want to be in a city. They want a yard and a house. So they're in a suburb that's right outside of the city, right? Very expensive real estate, but it's because it's commutable. It's a short drive uh, or there's maybe there's a train or something like that. So you can live in this suburb and you can commute. Right. And that makes that real estate very valuable because of the short commute. Well, if you're not commuting at all, if you are going to be working from home either five days a week or maybe three or four days a week, all of a sudden being close to the office is not that valuable anymore. If you're not commuting, then why do you have to pay the higher prices for that real estate that's commutable? So all of a sudden people are like, hey, I'm going to move further out. I can live an hour away from the major city, right? That's still fine if I need to come in, but yeah, you know, I'm not driving every day. So I'm, you know, so now people want to move away from these high priced real estate. The market's going to crash. And these uh, high priced areas, right? In the expensive suburbs or right in the cities, right? This is where you have the biggest mortgages, 
right? When, when, when someone stops paying a mortgage there, it's a bigger loss, right? If you have a guy that's living, you know, an hour away from all the jobs, right? And let's say the house is 150,000, 200,000. How big is that mortgage? It's a hundred thousand dollar mortgage, whatever. But you got a guy that's living, you know, in a, in a higher price neighborhood. That's, you know, a half hour, 20 minute drive from where the offices are. And maybe those houses are 500,000, 700,000, a million dollars. They have some jumbo mortgages and you can't even get a jumbo mortgage right now. The banks won't even offer them. So this whole movement where people are not driving to work and therefore no longer have to commute, that is going to crash the residential real estate market in the big cities and in the suburbs that immediately surround the big cities. So the banks are going to get killed. This is going to be way worse than 08 because 08 wasn't even a problem really in commercial real estate. You're now going to have a collapse in residential real estate and a collapse in commercial real estate simultaneously. This is the mother of all real estate collapses. And, you know, by the way, when people aren't commuting back and forth to work every day, there's probably a lot of other things they're not doing. You know, some of the sales that were taking place at the brick and mortar companies, I bet, you know, when people are commuting to work, maybe they drive by a store on the way back home or maybe during their lunch break, they're out, they do some shopping, right? They, but if you're never leaving your house, if you're just in your house the whole day, well, then you're not passing by a store. So you're probably going to do even more shopping on the internet. What else do you do? If you're not going to work, you're not eating lunch in a restaurant. What about all these restaurants that specialize in lunches, right? Or catering to companies that are having meetings. If everybody's having meetings on Zoom, there's no catering there. So a lot of these restaurants are completely out of business. You know, I can see a lot of, look, people, if you don't need to buy a, a lot of new clothes, you don't need jackets and ties. When you're working from, from your house, you don't have to get all dressed up to go to work. I mean, a lot of people are going to just be in, 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 in their pajamas doing their work. I mean, maybe if they have to, you know, do a video conference, then they got to put on a shirt or maybe they'll put on a tie or something uh, when, when they're doing that. But most of the time, they, you know, they'll be barefoot. I mean, so you, you people are not going to be buying new shoes. They're not going to be buying suits. Uh, you know, women are probably going to save a lot more time. They won't need as much makeup. Uh, hair products. I mean, it, you know, they, they, you know, they, a lot of this stuff is going to change, right? And, and so, real estate is just going to get imploded, and, and and there's so much debt associated with that. So this is just like a big, big change that's that's coming. That's in the winds. And as I talked before, I think there's going to be a lot of new rules and regulations that governments, either locally or federal, are going to require that companies, you know, test their workers test their, comp their customers, you know, and then therefore, well, you know what, if we just leave everybody at home. Now, the question is, is everybody working from home going to lead to a more productive or a less productive workforce? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I can think of pros and cons. I mean, certainly you save the commute time, right? Because commute time is dead. So if guys going to work, if it takes them an hour to get there and an hour to get home, that's two hours wasted, right? I mean, maybe he's doing some work. Maybe he's on a cell phone. But if assuming he's just listening to music or podcasts, that's two hours that he's not working. So that's a loss of productivity. Uh, so that's there. Uh, but then the question is, are people going to be more focused and more productive at their house? Or there are, are there going to be too many distractions? I mean, I know a lot of people, you know, you know, are surfing the internet at work, 
I mean, some of the people even watching porn sites at work. I guess they could watch them spend a lot more time on porn sites if they're at home and they're not in an office uh, doing. I mean, I know government workers spend a lot of time on these porn sites uh, when they're at work. But look, so will people, you know, at home, will they spend more time goofing off? Will they have more distractions than they would if they were in an office and focus? We'll see, uh, you know, if, if worker productivity improves or not. But I think based on these new realities, and I think, too, we don't know. I mean, now that the government has set this precedent that, oh, we're just going to order people to stay at home. I mean, we don't know the coronavirus can come back. It can mutate. We could have something else. Right. So businesses want to prepare in advance now for this type of contingency. And 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 so they, they may as well just start uh, migrating into that. And so just this big transition, people are not apprehending the immediate effects, because when you have an economy that's so highly levered up, it is not prepared for this transition. That the, the debt bubble, the debt pyramid that we have is going to implode. And then, of course, we know the government is going to say, well, this is nobody's fault. We got to bail everybody out because it's not their fault. It doesn't matter. The government doesn't have the money. It, it's nice. Yes, it's nice when people who are in trouble because it's not their fault. It's nice that they can just get money and so they don't have to suffer. But, you know, that's not life. You know, life is tough. Bad things happen. We got to deal with it. Right. The government can't do anything about it. The government is actually making it worse in its efforts to try to help because they can't just say we can't do anything because politically that's unacceptable to say there's nothing we can do, even though there is nothing we can do. But as I said earlier in the podcast, the reason that everybody is in so much trouble is because of all the stuff the government did in the past. The government screwed up this economy. The government crippled this economy. That is the problem. If it wasn't for government, we, we wouldn't have these problems. We wouldn't need their help, but they can't even help. All they can do is make the situation worse while they're pretending to help. Anyway, let me uh, move uh, on to these questions because I don't want to be too long on the podcast. Get, get to these questions. So first one comes from Darko Lukovic. Hi, Peter. Existing client, what are the odds that you and Dent are both part right? where things is low demand, high supply, house, cars, corn, oil, gadgets, deflate, and scarce things like gold, uh, coastal land, inflate. All right, look, Harry Dent and I are both right in that we both believe that at the very end, the dollar crashes, we have massive inflation, and gold goes through the roof. Dent agrees with me on that. What Dent disagrees with, where we part ways, is how we get there. So we agree at where the um, final destination is, but we just don't agree on the course that we're going to take to get there. See, Dent thinks we're going to take a side road to deflation before we end up at massive inflation. I just don't think we're going down that side road. And I think the risk is if you plan a trip that includes that side road and we go straight to inflation, you're screwed. That's why I said on my last podcast that the best thing you can do if Harry Dent and I are both right is to follow my advice. Because even if you follow my advice, you're still going to be a winner. It's just that if uh, you follow Harry Dent's advice and I'm the one that turns out to be right, then you lose everything. Uh, but as far as how prices can change in an inflationary environment, oh, yeah. 
I mean, look, I, I went over this on the last podcast. Prices of some things can go down, even as when you're having inflation, because prices of other things go up. Think about this. Let's say today, and I, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say that the average household spends 5% of their income on food. Let's say it's a very small expense. And let's say the price of food goes up so much that now people have to spend 50% of their income on food. Well, if you're spending 50% of your income on food, there's a lot of things that you used to buy that you're not buying anymore. And so if a lot of people are now in the same boat, spending half their money on food, and now they're not buying a lot of other things, then the price of those things could go down. But it doesn't matter to the people who are spending half their money on food if the price of the things that they can no longer afford anyway have now gone down. And so you're going to have that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think real estate is going to do so poorly is because I think people are going to have to cut back on what they can pay in rent. I think people are going to end up renting out rooms and taking, uh, you know, or, or, you know, families will be sharing houses, uh, things like that. And, and, and because they, they, they need money, they need to free up money for food. And other things are going to get more expensive uh, during inflation. So, yes, you can certainly see things that come down in price in an inflationary environment. Now, of course, if there's hyperinflation, right, everything is going to go up in price, except that some things are going to go up in price much faster. So in hyperinflation, the price of food will go up much more, let's say, uh, than the, the price of a house. Right. The price of a house might go up 10 percent and the price of food might go up a thousand percent. And so obviously, in real terms, that house is losing a lot of value, even if its price in terms of paper money is going up because the paper money is collapsing. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I also want to mention that, you know, I was going to do the money show in May in Las Vegas, but it got canceled. But they're going to do a virtual money show instead. And I have a feeling, again, that even after the coronavirus is over, I have a feeling that more and more conferences are going to switch to a virtual mode. Because after all, why plan a conference when you may have to cancel the plans, right? Will people commit to buying airline tickets, hotels, if they have no idea if some virus might come up and they'll be uh, confined to their house? So I have a feeling that even though people are doing this temporarily, I think a lot of conferences are going to switch to virtual conferences rather than actual conferences. And again, what does that mean for the hotels? What does that mean for the airline industries? Fewer people are traveling, right? But anyway, so the Money Show is going to have a virtual Money Show. You can go to their website, moneyshow.com, and sign up. The dates are May 11th through the 13th. I, I forget exactly when I'm speaking, but I will be participating in this virtual event. And it's free, so you might as well go to themoneyshow.com and sign up, and I'm sure they'll send you some kind of reminder, uh, and you can see what the itinerary is or uh, for all the other speakers. Uh, I think they are going to have the physical event, they said, in August. Uh, it's not my plan to be there. I don't really feel like going to Vegas in August. I know the, the, the uh, Freedom Fest is supposedly still going to be going on in July, uh, I, I think it's a mistake. I don't think they should be putting it on in July. We'll see. I mean, right now they're they're saying they're still going to have it. I'm just not sure how many people are actually going to show up. And that's a paid event. But we'll see. But for now, make a point, May 11th to the 13th, uh, the virtual money show. So make sure you're there.
Anyway, let me go to the next uh, question. This one was asked. And by the way, if you don't know, these questions are being submitted uh, under on the live chat. And I know people, I'm doing these uh, um, YouTubes live now, and people are asking these questions, but I'm not answering the questions live. I'm actually making a note of all the people who have asked me questions, and then I'm, a- I'm answering them later. So that's what I'm doing. I'm not answering any of the questions that I see up there today. I mean, maybe I'll do that again, but when I do that, the podcast takes forever because people keep asking questions, asking questions, and I'm, I'm doing a three, four-hour podcast, and I, you know, I just don't have that much time. So, but I'm, I, I, people have been asking questions, so I want to answer them, especially when people are, are paying money. So I really want to make sure that uh, I answer the questions. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. 
deal. Um, this one is from my GS Go highlights. Uh, does oil look attractive at these prices, or do you think the glut of supply will continue? Uh, look, oil prices are only down temporarily, right? There is an old saying in the in the oil industry: the best solution for low prices is low prices. Right? It solves its own problem. Right? What happens when prices are low? People stop producing oil, and eventually the price goes up. One of the reasons that we've overproduced is because of all the cheap money that has been available to the oil and gas industry that has allowed them to keep producing, even though they should have gone bankrupt years ago. Right. So, but a lot of these companies are going to go bankrupt. Now, I know the the Trump administration is talking about more money to bail out the oil and gas industry. And hopefully that doesn't happen because if we keep these companies in business and keep out uh, losing money producing oil. I mean, we can we can have oil uh, cheap, but we're in the it's end up, it's going to end up costing us a lot more money because if the government has to pay a massive subsidy to the oil companies so they can keep producing oil, when you add the cost of the subsidy to the price of the oil, the oil ends up being much more expensive than if we just let these companies go bankrupt and had fewer companies producing oil. Right. So but again, I've talked about the seen versus the unseen. Uh, so if the government bails out a bunch of oil companies, you can see the fact that these companies are still in business and workers still have jobs. But what you don't see is society is now poor because we're actually spending more money on energy than we actually need. Not because the price of the energy is higher, but because the cost of the subsidy when added to the price of the energy. And so it really screws up the economy. And so hopefully we don't get these bailouts. But, you know, I think we're going to do it. I mean, I just think they're going to keep on printing money and bailing everybody out until the bailout money has no value. That's what's going to put an end to it. They are going to print money until the money they print has no value, which is why you got to get rid of all your money now, all of your cash. You got to turn it into gold. You got to turn it into foreign assets uh, with good dividends. You got to own real stuff. Because you're going to get wiped out if you just have paper. So again, the answer to that question is eventually oil prices are going to go way up. I just don't know how much longer or how long they're going to stay this cheap. Uh, but we're going to be in a recession for a long time and so or depression. So, but I think you have to watch the foreign exchange markets. I think the real key is going to be when the dollar cracks. Until the dollar really cracks, oil prices can stay you know, in this $20 barrel range uh, maybe lower, maybe a little higher. But once the dollar really starts to fall, then oil prices are going to really start to go up, uh, regardless of how weak the U.S. economy is. The next question is from Brandon Brown. If I hold securities in U.S. dollars and the U.S. dollar plummets, does the value of my holdings go down even if the underlying value of the asset goes up? All right. Just because you have an asset that is priced in dollars on your statement, right, it's still an asset, right? It's just assigning a price. I mean, even my clients that have accounts with me, if we own an asset in Australia, if we own an asset in Switzerland, uh, the price is in dollars. I mean, when I first started out in this business, I actually used to have different confirmations for every currency. So clients would get a statement with New Zealand dollars, a statement with Swiss francs, you know, a statement uh, with Singapore dollars. And it would get very confusing because every asset was in a different currency, and then they didn't even know what it, what the account was worth. So along, you know, at some point we we changed all that up, and everybody just gets one statement, and every price of every stock is converted and expressed in U.S. dollars. 
even if that stock is traded in another currency, to the extent that we put it on a statement or put it in your account, we always show you the price in U.S. dollars. But you don't own U.S. dollars when you own a foreign stock. You own a foreign stock. You also don't own U.S. dollars when you own a domestic stock. You own that stock. Now, the key is if you own a domestic stock, chances are most of their earnings are U.S. dollars. So if you own a company that's earning U.S. dollars and the dollar crashes, their earnings crash. If you own stock in a company that relies on Americans as customers and those customers are broke, what happens to that business? If you own stock in an American company and now because the economy is so weak and the socialists are in charge, they're raising taxes or they're putting all sorts of onerous requirements on your company, uh, they are undermining the value of the company. So I think you want to get out of U.S. dollars, but you also want to get out of companies that earn U.S. dollars. You certainly want to get out of bonds that are simply obligations to be paid in U.S. dollars. And you want to own foreign assets. And it doesn't matter if they're priced on your statement in dollars. If the dollar loses half its value, all else being equal, uh, the dollar price of that security will double. So if you have $10,000 worth of a foreign stock and the dollar loses half its value and the foreign stock price doesn't change in local currency, then you'll see that that stock has doubled and you'll now have twice as many dollars that have lost half their value. So you don't have anything, right? You're, you, you haven't actually gained, but you've avoided a big loss. The people that had $10,000 and now the dollar loses half its value, even though they still have $10,000, it feels like they have $5,000 because everything that used to cost $10 now costs 20. Next question, Jeffrey Morse. He asked, some say it's not the quantity of money, but the velocity that counts. Yeah, the velocity obviously is a big factor, especially if we move into the realm of inflation. And when you're talking about velocity, you're talking about how quickly the money turns over. Like if you get money, how quickly do you spend it, right? If you just get money and, and you save it or you put it under your mattress and you don't recirculate it, right? It's not bidding for prices. But what happens as people lose confidence in money, they don't want to hold on to it very long, right? And when you really have high inflation, as soon as you get money, you want to spend it. And in fact, in hyperinflations, I mean, there are stories, you know, where people, you know, they would have to get paid every day, right? You couldn't get paid weekly because by the time you got your money at the end of the week, it wouldn't buy anything. So you would have to get your money. In fact, I think what was happening in Germany, a guy would earn money, but his wife would come down to work to take to get the money while he was still at work so she could go and spend it before he even finished working. Because even if you wait until the end of the day, the money that you just earned might not have any value. So obviously, when money is losing value so quickly that it's like a hot potato, like as soon as you touch it, you got to get rid of it because you're worried about getting stuck with it when the music stops. So yes, velocity is important, but I think it's really going to be important when inflation really starts to accelerate into crazy numbers. I mean, it's not going to be important in getting the inflation rate up to 5% or 10%, I think. But when we're talking about 100% inflation, yeah, that's going to be a big driver. It's going to be how quickly people want to get rid of their money, which is why, you know, as soon as you get money, you want to convert it to gold or silver because then you can hold on to it. You can wait a while. You can decide what you want. You can save it. When money is really losing value quickly, you have to spend it quickly. You don't have time to think. You just got to get rid of it. You got to buy whatever you can. You got to buy what's ever there as quickly as you can. You know, and that's when eventually, you know, you get black markets. And if you really want to buy the good stuff, you got to have something else. Like you got to have silver got to have gold. You got to have real money. Or maybe there's another fiat currency that's not collapsing. 
So maybe there'll be a black market in Swiss francs or Singapore dollars. I mean, who knows? There could be merchants that start accepting other currencies. I know you can go to some countries now where, you know, the black market currency is the dollar, right? Because on a relative basis, the dollar is not nearly losing value as quickly as, let's say, a peso, wherever it is. And, and so uh, people start using dollars. So that's going to happen here. And yes, the velocity is really, really going to pick up. Um, this is from Chris Nail. Thoughts on the fact that inflation was here all along and offset the falling prices that should have been coming down. Yeah, I mean, I talk about this a lot, that you can't just look at the CPI and say, oh, the CPI is only up 2%, so we have 2% inflation. What if the government didn't create any inflation, right? They didn't print any money. What if the CPI would have gone down by 5%, right? So instead of prices falling by 5%, they went up by 2%. So the inflation caused a 7% increase in prices. You just don't see the whole 7% because you don't see the 5% price reduction that never took place. Now, I know the first thing that all these Keynesians are going to say is, well, that means the government saved us from having to suffer deflation, right? Because 5% decline in prices would be a disaster. But why? I mean, once you stop to think about that nonsense for even a nanosecond, you realize that it's a bunch of BS. Why are prices going down bad, right? I mean, would anybody be upset if the cost of living went down, if food got cheaper, if college tuitions went down every year instead of up every year, uh, it, you know, if energy prices went down, if all prices went down? I mean, they did. If you look at a consumer price index, you look at the CPI in 1800, and then you look at the CPI in 1900, it was half. It, prices went down by 50% over 100 years. So the trend was for prices to go down. We had a booming economy. We had the uh, Industrial Revolution, the strongest economy we ever had in the Gilded Age uh, was with falling prices. There is nothing wrong. Now, I know people will say, but if prices are falling, it's good for consumers, but it's bad for producers. No, it's not. Are falling cell phone prices bad for cell phone companies? No. Cell phone companies make a lot more money with lower cell phone prices than they did when they were higher because a lot more people can afford to buy them when they're down. See, the thing is, what's important for a business is not the price of the product, but the volume and the margin. So let's say, you know, when television sets first came out and maybe they were, I don't know, whatever the equivalent of, let's say it's $10,000 or $20,000 to buy a television set. And you can sell maybe a hundred people in the whole country can afford to, uh, to buy that television set. And I don't know what the margins were, Right. Maybe maybe you sold it for twenty thousand and it cost you ten thousand. Maybe you had a hundred percent margin, but you only had a handful of people that could afford to buy it. Now all of a sudden you could buy a television for three hundred bucks and maybe it costs you two fifty to make it. Maybe your margins are smaller, but your volume is so much higher. You're selling so many more sets, right, at three hundred dollars than you did at twenty thousand that you make more money. That's what counts. I mean, all businesses want to find ways to lower prices. If they can lower their prices, they can sell more stuff because there's more demand that lower prices. That's how supply and demand works. So falling prices don't hurt producers. They help producers. The lower my price, the more stuff I can afford. I mean, the more stuff I can sell because the more customers I'll have. So consumers benefit by falling prices. Producers benefit by falling prices. The whole world benefits by falling prices. When prices go up, that hurts consumers. They can buy less. If consumers can buy less, it hurts producers because they sell less. 
So this whole nonsense that we need rising prices or nobody will buy, we'll need rising prices or businesses can't make a profit, that is all pure BS, right? Falling prices equals a rising standard of living. Falling prices means we buy more stuff at lower prices. See, the amount of uh, spending doesn't go down, right? Let's say prices go down by 50%. Now I can buy twice as much stuff. I'm not spending less because prices went down. I, I, I'm buying more. I mean, what if prices go up so much that you can, only, you can barely afford anything? Like I said with the example of food, what if the price of food becomes so expensive that the only thing you can buy is food? You can't buy anything else because you're spending all your money on food. But in a free market, as the price of food goes down and down and down, as eating gets cheaper and cheaper, now I have more money to buy other things. So we always benefit from falling prices. Government is trying to perpetuate a lie that we need rising prices so they can generate inflation. But the real increase in prices is not how much prices went up, but by how much they didn't go down plus how much they went up. Because in a market economy, the natural tendency for prices is to come down. Because what happens is businesses make investments in capital and labor-saving devices, and they become more efficient. They become more productive, right? The, the longer you produce something, the better you get at producing it. The more efficient you become at producing it. So free markets, lower prices, stuff that you know is being produced in year one, by the time you're producing it in year 10, you found better ways to make it, more efficient ways to make it, the products improve, the prices come down, and everybody makes more money. The businesses make more money selling and the consumers are better off because they can buy more at lower prices and that frees up money to buy other things that maybe they weren't, weren't buying before. Uh, but yeah, that's the answer to the question. So yes, prices should have come down. They didn't come down. In fact, even in 2008, right? 2008 was a year, a massive collapse in the economy. Prices should have gone down in 2008. Instead, we still had a rise in the CPI. The CPI was still up. It wasn't up a lot. It was up like 1%, but maybe it would have fallen by 10%. And wouldn't that have been a benefit? A lot of people lose their job. Wouldn't it be a good thing if while you lost your job, you know, prices went down. So, you know, you're, you're, you got less money because you're not working, but now things don't cost as much. So falling prices actually act as a buffer in an economic decline if you get prices coming down. But the government wants to rob us of that benefit by creating inflation under the guise that rising prices are good for us. Next one is from Dmitry Shmirkovic. Hi, Peter. The VIX premiums on puts and calls are coming down. Why? Uh, well, obviously, the volatility has come down, right? I mean, the markets are still more volatile than they were six months ago. We see bigger swings, but they're nowhere near as volatile as they were a few weeks ago. And so, obviously, as the volatility is compressing, uh, then you're going to see the call and put premiums coming down in this environment. And of course, you know, now, you know, you pretty much have a solid floor beneath the market. I think the market could retest the lows or make new lows, but I think the downside risk is limited uh, by massive money printing. But I also think the upside potential is limited by a lousy economy and falling earnings. So I don't see a lot of upside in U.S. stocks, but I don't see tremendous downside either. And that would be why these uh, put and call premiums uh, would be going down. Now, of course, I see a lot of downside in real terms, adjusted for inflation, adjusted for the price of gold. 
I see significant downside risk in the market. Uh, but those put and calls are not related to the, st- the value of stocks versus gold. They're related to the value of stocks uh, versus U.S. dollars. Next one is from old Peter Noble. Let me see. Uh, Thank you for your podcast. Can you use, can the U.S. credibly default on its debt to China uh, as a repayment for the coronavirus? What would be the consequences? Look, there are a lot of people that think that, hey, China did this either deliberately or unintentionally. They were either negligent or they outright, you know, deliberately infected everybody with the coronavirus. Um, I don't know how, you know, we would even prove that were that the case or how we would uh, enforce a judgment. But yes, one thing we could do is default on the bonds that the Chinese have, right? Because obviously you say, how do you enforce uh, a judgment against the sovereign? We can obviously uh, say that none of the bonds that China has, I'm sure there's some kind of serial number. There's some way the government can keep track of the bonds that are currently owned by the Chinese. Um, and we could say, look, we're not going to pay any interest or any principal. Uh, and now China is stuck with nothing. Now, obviously, if we do that, we have now set a major precedent that would basically mean, hey, if we don't like what you did, if we think you did something wrong, we reserve the right to just selectively default on your treasuries. Well, if that's the case, nobody's going to want to own a treasury. Who the hell is going to take a chance? Once you establish that precedent, of defaulting, even if you have a reason for doing it, then why would anybody own a treasury and take a chance that you're just going to decide that you don't like what they did, that they did something wrong and now you're not going to pay? So practically, you know, while it may be possible to, to do it, it would be a very, very dangerous precedent that would immediately result in a complete crash of the bond market. Even though in theory, you could say, hey, we cancel all that debt, right? So we would cancel a trillion dollars or $2 trillion of debt would no longer be owed, but we're rake, we're racking up debt a trillion dollars a month. So I don't think that would make a big deal if we just, you know, reduce the national debt by one or 2 trillion because we canceled the debt that was held by China. Because believe me, the minute we did that, no foreign nation, nobody would want to own a U.S. treasury. I mean, the whole market would implode. And so I think the United States would end up suffering even more than China. China's going to lose the money on its treasuries anyway. The dollar is going to collapse eventually anyway. China is going to take a complete loss on its treasuries. What China needs to do is get rid of its treasuries now and get rid of its dollars now. And believe me, if they even thought that we were contemplating doing something like that, they would do it right now. I mean, oh, my God, we better get rid of all these dollars, all these treasuries if there's actually a serious talk about defaulting on the the bonds that the Chinese own. Uh, Next uh, question. From Raymond, if the U.S. government forgives loans such as student loans, will they do it with Fed printed money or just writing it off? Well, look, if the loans are forgiven that are owned by private lenders, but that are guaranteed by the U.S. government, which is the way it used to be done, it was changed while Obama was president. But before Obama, the loans were issued privately and the government guaranteed them. So to the extent that those loans are forgiven, the government is going to have to make all the lenders whole. So the government will end up repaying the banks, not the students. Where's the government going to get the money? Not from taxation, from inflation, which is another form of taxation. So in that case, they have to print the money. Now, what happens if the government itself owns the loan, right? 
right? It says that it's 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 a loan that was issued directly by the U.S. government. Well, that means the U.S. government fronted the money to the students to pay for their education. They were supposed to get that money back. They had that loan on their books as an asset, and now that asset no longer exists because they they've torn up the paper. So they're no longer going to get paid back. So instead of getting paid back from the student, where's the money coming from? Because they gave the money to the student who gave it to the universities. If the government's not going to get the money back, then how did that college education get paid for? And all the money that the students spent on housing or books or travel when he went to school. Well, the government has to pay for it. How? Through taxation? Probably not. Again, money printing. So all of the defaulted loans simply lead to additional money printing to cover those costs. But the other problem is, and I've mentioned this, what do you do about the moral hazard? Because once you default on the loans, you can't continue to allow loans to be made because now the borrowers know, well, I'm never going to have to pay this loan back because it's just going to be forgiven. And as soon as the colleges know that the loans will be forgiven, they can charge even more money. Hey, what do you care what you pay? What do you care how much you borrow? You never got to pay it back anyway. So the minute we forgive loans, we have to make college free. That's the, or we have to abolish the loans. Maybe we could say, look, we never should have done this. The government never should have had student loans. It was a mistake. So we're going to cancel all student loans, but there's no more student loans. There's no more government student loans. There's no more guaranteed student loans. That would be the better way to do it, but there's no way they're going to do that. So the only way that they can cancel the student loans is by making college free. And of course, when they make it free, it's going to cost more than ever because the most expensive stuff is the stuff that you get for free from the government. Uh, next question, does hyperinflation hit first in the USA or Europe? I say if we're going to have hyperinflation, it's going to hit the US before it hits Europe. I could be wrong. There could be hyperinflation in Europe first. I just think it's more likely to happen in the US uh, than in Europe. In fact, I think it's far more likely to happen. I mean, it did happen once in Europe, right, in Germany. And because it happened in Germany and because you have the Bundesbank that has some influence and because I think overall uh, the Eurozone uh, is in better shape uh, than the U.S., then there won't be hyperinflation. Maybe if the European Union breaks up, uh, could there be hyperinflation in an independent Portugal or an independent Greece? Maybe, or you know, Spain or Italy or one of the, but as long as the Eurozone is intact and you still have Germany there, uh, I think uh, the odds are slimmer that they'll have hyperinflation. I think it's much better uh, odds that it's going to happen here. But even if we don't have hyperinflation here, I think inflation will be much higher because I do think the Europeans are going to be more inclined to fight the inflation once it gets to a level that the Germans find intolerable. But I don't believe the U.S. will ever see a point where the inflation is high enough that they're willing to fight it because I think they're always going to regard the cure for high inflation as being worse than the disease of high inflation. Uh, next question, uh, Gary Katz. If the dollar is going to go down in value, why would you be buying gold mining stocks? Well, of course, you're buying gold mining stocks because when the dollar goes down, the price of gold goes up. And when the dollar goes down, more people want to own gold to get out of dollars. And the gold mining companies own all that gold that's in the ground. And they get to mine it and they'll be able to sell it at a huge profit. Uh, so yeah, if we have a big drop in the dollar, we will have a big rise in the price of gold. And I think the gold mining stocks are going to kill it. And I think the people that own gold mining stocks are going to make a ton of money, which is why I own 
uh, a lot of gold mining stocks. I've owned them for years. I've, I, I've owned them for a long time. Uh, so it's not like I'm just starting to buy them. Obviously, I bought them early, uh, but look at how well they've done. I mean, they've more than doubled now off the lows. Uh, in fact, I think this month is going to be the biggest, the, the best month in the history of uh, the GDX and the GDXJ of these indexes. And this is this is a record that will be broken. This is the best month these these indexes have ever had. But this record is not going to last. They're going to have even better months in the future. Uh, and that's why I think that people need to need to get on board. And again, look at my my gold fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. EPGFX is one of the symbols. Or if you have a larger account, you can set up an account with me and we'll manage your portfolio for you in individual stocks. You don't need you won't have to own a fund. You can have your own account managed uh, the same way that we manage the fund. The, the manager on the fund is Adrian Day. Uh, Europe Pacific Asset Management is still the company, uh, but Adrian is the portfolio manager. And he's got tremendous experience and a great track record, uh, which is why we hired him uh, to run these portfolios. Next question is from Vic1024. Would it be wise to refinance to a 30-year fixed rate mortgage? Um, yeah, I always recommend that you take out those fixed rate mortgages for 30 years. I mean, clearly it's been a mistake. I mean, I was telling people to do that 10 years ago. And people could have saved a lot of money by just rolling over short-term mortgages. Uh, but you don't have a lot of peace of mind when you do that. I mean, the rates are super low. Uh, so, I mean, you save, yeah, you can save a little bit if you just take an adjustable, uh, but you run a tremendous risk of rates really going up. Uh, so for the peace of mind, and I do think that to the extent that anybody makes money in real estate, it's not going to be because the real estate gained value. It's going to be because the debt uh, was wiped out. So basically you borrow money to buy real estate. And then you end up with the real estate for free because the money that you repay the lender basically has no value. Uh, and so that's how you make money. You make money as a debtor, not as an owner of real estate. In fact, the real estate is going to be more expensive to own because the cost of maintaining it is going to go up in inflation. Uh, but the one price, one cost that you're not going to have to worry about is your mortgage uh, if it's fixed because the payments are going to be low. I and mean, I often joke uh, that if you take out a 30-year mortgage, 30 years from now, uh, the stamp on your check is going to have a bigger number than the number that's written on the check where you make your final mortgage payment, because that's how much inflation there is. Although now they use these forever stamps, so maybe there won't actually be a number uh, on the stamp, but you get what I mean. Um, next question is from Maurice Brenz. It looks like we can send requests to book you on Joe Rogan's booking agent on the website. I suggest asking your audience, yeah, you know, I don't want to bombard Joe Rogan uh, with requests. You know, I mean, I'm sure they're busy enough, but to the extent that, you know, you request people and that's acceptable, sure. You know, you can always put in a request to Joe Rogan. Hey, Joe, love your podcast. It's been a while since Peter Schiff's been on. Uh, maybe you should bring him back and uh, get his take on what's going on. You know, they might not be upset uh, if that's normally what they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, Joe knows I'm out here, you know, he can contact me whenever, whenever he wants, happy to do his show again. I'm not getting on a plane right now. Although I have heard that Rogan has had some podcasts where now people are not in studio. He is kind of doing the social distancing. So I'm totally uh, down for doing the Rogan podcast from Puerto Rico. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if people want to request that, uh, that would be fine. Okay. Next one is from Greg S. Uh, will the ratio of gold to U.S. stock market be one-to-one -one in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, I've talked about that uh, as my target for the stock market where the Dow is worth one ounce of gold. Uh, you know, right now the Dow Jones is what, 22, 23,000. Uh, you know, it's, let me just check because I know it's been moving around. Uh, 23,775 is where it closed. Uh, gold's about 1730. Uh, so clearly a long way to go to get those two numbers to be the same. Uh, but the reason I, I, I have one-to-one as a target is because one-to-one is where the market bottomed at two other key bottoms. The 1932 bottom, where the Dow uh, and the gold were both about 35, right? The Dow went down to 35 and gold was $35 an ounce. Um, and then you had um, 1980, where both the Dow and gold were about 800. So you, you have two key periods of time. The 1980s was the bottom of a huge bear market that went from 1966 to 1980, where the Dow went from 20 ounces of gold to one ounce of gold. But that began a huge bull market that really kept going until 2000. And that was when the Dow peaked at about 42 ounces of gold in 2000 before the dot-com bubble popped. And we're well below that peak now. I mean, we haven't taken that peak out. I mean, that was the top of the market in terms of gold was 2000. And it's never even come close. And I think we're still in that major long-term bear market that I think will end with the Dow and the gold at about the same price. So it could end at Dow 10,000, gold 10,000. It could end at Dow 20,000, gold 20,000. It could end at Dow 50,000, gold 50,000. You know, the important thing is not what the price is, but that the price of gold and the Dow are the same number. And it may not go all the way to one to one. I mean, it might get to two to one. So maybe the Dow goes to 20,000 and gold is at 10,000 or the Dow goes to 10,000, gold's at 5,000. Who knows where it's going to be? But I think somewhere between two to one to one to one is where you're going to buy it. And I think if you get the opportunity to buy the Dow for about an ounce of gold, you should probably do it. Uh, and it's probably going to be very scary. And people are going to think you're an idiot for buying the stock market at that point in time. There probably really will be blood in the streets. Now, hopefully we don't go completely socialist because that could screw the whole thing up. Because, you know, in 1932, even though we got FDR, we weren't socialist. And in 1980, we got Reagan, which was an improvement over, uh, you know, Carter, uh, Nixon, uh, Linda Johnson, Kennedy, all that crowd. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, maybe if we go full socialist, Maybe one-to-one one won't be the bottom. Maybe the Dow will even go lower. Who knows? I mean, if the government nationalizes the Dow, if they actually steal the means of production, you know, then what the hell is the Dow worth if the government takes it all? Remember, they could just print as much money as they want. They don't even have to nationalize it by force. They just print up enough money and buy everything. Problem is the money that they print that ultimately has no value. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress.
The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, Anyway, um, next question, John Smith. The formula for the price level is price equals MV over Q. Right, money, velocity. Yeah, I got to... There is no velocity of money. How can we have inflation? Look, there is some velocity, right? Obviously, if nobody spent any of the money, then yes, right? But you have to spend money. You have to live, right? People need food. People need shelter. There are certain things that you need. You can't not spend any money. So the velocity is never going to go to zero. You're going to have to buy something. And the more money the government creates, the more expensive prices are going to be. But yes, as I explained earlier, when velocity really picks up, which it will as inflation really accelerates, then it's a self-perpetuating spiral uh, when it comes to prices. But again, one of the big reasons that we didn't see uh, more inflation uh, based on all the money printing or higher prices is because so much of the money went into financial assets, went into bonds, went into stocks, uh, went into real estate. And so it was pushing up those prices. And that was inflation, except people didn't care about it because it was making them richer on paper. When the inflation goes into consumer goods, that's when it makes you poorer because it increases your cost of living, uh, not your net worth. Next question is from Becky Ching. When do you recommend getting into oil? Uh, What oil ticker? Okay, you're talking about physical. Look, I own oil stocks. We own some oil stocks. The ones I think are going to be the best positioned are the foreign companies that have the best fields, the lowest production costs that will benefit the most in the long run from the collapse of the U.S. shale oil industry. I also think natural gas. I mean, I think there's going to be some interesting moves in natural gas. I think natural gas prices are going to go way up, and I think uh, it's going to get a lot more expensive in the U.S. Because when we had all this drilling for oil, we were getting a lot of extra natural gas as well. But when all the oil drilling stops, then they're not going to get as much natural gas that was also coming out of those wells. And so I think natural gas prices, which are not you know, going to be imported, I think you're going to see big increases. So people are used to, we've had cheap natural gas for a while now as a byproduct of the shell, shell boom. Well, that's going to go away. Natural gas prices, I think heating oil, I think you know maybe, I don't know if it's going to be this winter or the winter after that, but I think a lot of these uh, energy uh, markets are going to end up going way up. But for now, look, I, we, we have the exposure to the major oil companies uh, outside the U.S., but I still think that gold is the better inflation hedge right now than oil. I'd rather own you know yellow gold than black gold, and I think that the uh, gold stocks uh, have a lot more upside uh, in the short run than do the oil stocks. Um, Tanner Bean, are you familiar with the 1960s Cold War threat by Nikita Khrushchev to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture during his visit to the U.S., declaring that we would all be living under socialism without war with Russia. Look, I, I, I know that during the 1960s, right, 
the idea was that the, Russia was going to bury us, right? That they, they were going to win, that socialism, communism was going to triumph over capitalism. That was all a bunch of nonsense, all a bunch of Russian uh, communist propaganda. The fact that anybody was even afraid uh, of the Soviet Union, that somehow that they were going to bury the West, that they were going to come out on top economically, but they couldn't even feed themselves. Without us, they would have starved. We kept subsidizing. We were, you know, we were giving them money so they can buy American grain. You know, before the communists came in to Russia, Russia was the breadbasket of Europe, right? They were, they were an agricultural powerhouse. The communists came in and destroyed the whole thing. They couldn't even farm under communism, let alone manufacture stuff. So the whole thing was a house of cards. The only thing that Russia had was a military. That's it. And yes, you could see, you know, what what you know what they had. You could see their planes, you could see their tanks, right? But beneath that veneer uh, was a complete disaster waiting to happen. And eventually, the Russian economy completely imploded, or the Soviet Union imploded. You know, and the same thing is going to happen in the United States, because a lot of people, there's a lot of similarities there between our empire and the Soviet empire, in that we have a big military, and, and people think that we have this powerful economy, but it's all based on debt. It's all an illusion. Right. Uh, it's based on the dollar being the reserve currency, even though it shouldn't be the reserve currency, even though none of the qualities that we had when the dollar became the reserve currency exist today. And if we try to get the world to go on the dollar as the reserve currency with these huge trade deficits, with these huge budget deficits, they would have laughed in our face. The only reason it worked is because we had surpluses. You know, we were the world's biggest creditor nation. We had all the gold. We had massive exports. We made everything. All the manufactured goods were produced in the United States. We had the lowest prices and we paid the highest wages, right? We were a superpower in manufacturing and in, in wealth. Uh, and, that, um, and our money was backed by gold. It was redeemable in gold. We have none of those qualities now. Um, this is from Roman Pothier. I ordered the biggest con today. Any tax breaks in Puerto Rico for non-business owners, real estate uh, options? Uh, look, there's a lot of tax breaks in Puerto Rico, um, but uh, I'm glad you ordered The Biggest Con. It's a great book. You are really going to enjoy that book. Uh, that's my father's first book. You know, his original title for that book was The U.S. Government Public Enemy Number One. And Random House was the uh, publisher, and they didn't want to go with that. They thought it was too, you know, kind of toxic of a title, U.S. Government Public Enemy Number One. So they came up with the, the book The Biggest Con. But the reason my dad wanted to call the book uh, the U.S. government public enemy number one is because Gerald Ford had declared inflation to be public enemy number one. And since my father knew that inflation was caused by the government, right, because the government is the only is the source of all inflation because they have the printing press, the Federal Reserve. If Gerald Ford said inflation was public enemy number one and the government created inflation, then the government is public enemy number one. And so that's where the title came from. Uh, but it didn't uh, end up with that title. So that's a little bit of the backstory. But I think my dad mentions that in the introduction of the book. So it's not the official title, but unofficially, he, he, he mentions that that's what he was going to call the book. Next question. Hi, Peter. If the banks are offering a mortgage vacation, who is going to sell their house uh, if it barely costs anything. Yeah, look, a lot of people, if they don't have to pay their mortgages, yeah, there's no, they're not going to put their houses up for sale, right? Clearly. Uh, but no one's going to buy houses either in this environment. So some houses are going to come up for sale because people are going to need money for whatever reason. 
But yeah, as long as you don't have to pay your mortgage, you might as well just live mortgage free. And if you're not paying your mortgage, well, you're not going to pay your property taxes. So that's going to be a problem for the local governments, the local school systems that rely on property taxes. And if you're not paying your property tax, you're not paying your mortgage, you're not going to maintain the property. If something really bad goes wrong, you're not going to fix it. Uh, because what the hell, you're just putting money in someone else's pocket. But yes, but eventually uh, the market is going to implode because some houses are going to sell. Uh, and not all houses have mortgages. You've got plenty of uh uh, you know, private equity companies that are loaded up on real estate and they have no mortgages. I think a lot of this property is going to come on the market and the market's going to crash. Next one is from Grand uh, McCarley. Okay, almost done here. What's your opinion on other cryptos besides Bitcoin, such as Dash, um, that can be spent on a debit card? And as a remittance payment quicker than international bank, look, I don't like any cryptocurrencies. I don't. I think all of them are going to zero. Uh, Bitcoin actually went up a bit this week. It had one day it rallied. You know, in fact, it's it's up back above seven thousand. I think it's around seventy five hundred. Last I checked, let me take a look where it is. Uh, yeah, seventy five thirty. As I'm speaking, it had this big move up and then it's gone sideways. This is what happens with Bitcoin. They pump it up. Right. They all of a sudden they ramp it. They'll, they'll find a time where maybe the volume is thin and then they'll run up the price. And when they do that, they sucker in these momentum buyers, these FOMO buyers. Oh, it's about to go to the moon. Right. And then people start buying it. And then whoever pumps it up, they just start unloading. Right. That's why you never see any follow through. You get a big spike up in Bitcoin and then all of a sudden it just stops going up and it goes sideways for a long time as whoever pumped it up is dumping it, right? And they're selling into the excitement that they created by this move up. Because as soon as it moves up, it sucks a lot of momentum money back into the Bitcoin market. And now there's some demand that they can sell into. And eventually that new demand dries up, the selling continues, and the market implodes. And I think that's where we are right now. I think we're getting ready for the next dump uh, from the latest pump. But look, you don't need it. It's easy to send money. There are plenty of services right now where you can instantly, for low cost or no cost, send fiat currency to anybody, right? So you don't need Bitcoin. You, you know, there are other alternatives right now other than a, a bank wire. There are very efficient ways right now, low cost ways that I can send dollars to anybody anywhere in the world very quickly, very cheaply. Right. So why would I need Bitcoin for that? You only need Bitcoin if you want it as a better store of value than the dollar, not because it's more efficient as a medium of exchange, because it's not. It's way less efficient. The question is, is it a better store of value? And I don't think so. I don't think it has any value to store. I think it's going to collapse. Gold is a better store of value, but it's not as easy to use uh, as a medium of exchange because of government. Right. Companies like gold money could easily uh, allow people to use gold as a medium of exchange. The only reason they're not doing it is because they can't afford the compliance. My bank hopefully is going to do it. And I talked about this before, right? My bank, I you know, once I get this new system rolled out, you know, my bank is going to be treating and it's going to be opened up to Americans too, by the way. I'm going to do this all over the world. Not it's Americans are going to be included. They're going to be able to have bank accounts at your Pacific bank. Not now. Don't try to open one now because we're not taking Americans yet. Um, but once my bank is fully set up, 
my bank is going to look at gold as a currency, just like any other currency. Nobody else is doing this. So you have an account with my bank. You can have your deposits in dollars. You can have them in euros. You can have them in pounds. You can have them in yen, or you can have them in gold. And if you have your account in gold, your balance is in a weight of gold. You can see how many grams of gold are in your bank account. Then you can access that bank account. You can send a wire to somebody from that bank account. When you send the wire, the gold is sold and the wire is sent. You can write a check you know, online. You can do one of those checks against your account. You put your bank number, a check number, and you can write a check right against. We're not going to have physical checks. You're not going to get a checkbook, but you can do a, an, 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 you know, an e-check and you can write a check. And even with no cash, if you just have gold and the gold is sold in real time to clear that check, you get a debit card, right? A real debit card uh, uh, tried to that account, right? You want to go and spend it. You want to buy something for $500. As you buy it, the, the card will sell $500 worth of gold real time directly out of your bank account in order to make that possible. So all this is going to happen at my bank once I get everything finished. And the reason that I'm convinced that my bank can afford to do it is because all I'm doing, I'm already complying with all the regulations of a bank, right? And believe me, I mean, I got more people in compliance. That's my biggest department, right? Uh, but once I have a bank customer, it doesn't make a difference to the regulators how the deposits are held. Doesn't matter if the deposits are dollars, euros, or gold. I can store my deposits any way I want. I don't make any loans. So what difference does it make? I'm not loaning out my euros. I'm not loaning out my dollars. So I'm not going to loan out my gold. All the deposits just sit at the bank. So it doesn't matter to me whether the deposit is sitting in gold, right? And it doesn't matter to the regulators. What I'm already doing all the same compliance uh, for a dollar account that I do for a gold account. No, no difference. I'm just giving my customers the option. And basically what they're going to be able to do is when you get a debit card, let's say you have gold in your account. You may also have dollars. You may also have euros. You can adjust the spend on that card. So if you want to use the card and have the euros spent, just select euros. And now the card is set at euros. Because most people, right, if you have an account that has gold, that has dollars, that has euros, the last thing you'd want to spend is your gold, right? That's Gresham's law, right? You want to spend bad money first. You want to hold on to your good money. So what I'm hoping my customers will do is they won't spend any of their gold. They'll have gold in their bank account as a store of value. But if they also have dollars in that account, they'll spend those. Wait until you run out of paper money, right, before you start spending your gold. But the key is going to be once paper money collapses, right, people are going to lose out on, on all their wealth. We have hyperinflation. Your bank account is protected. You know, forget the FDIC. That's worthless. What protects you is gold, having real money deposited at your bank, right? That's what's your protection. That's what protects your purchasing power. But in the meantime, I'll be able to allow people to access that, that, those doll, those, that gold. And what my ultimate plan would be for the bank is to allow my bank customers to transfer ownership of their gold directly to other bank customers so that you never have to touch fiat. Right. If, if you have a bank account with your Pacific bank and you want to buy a product or buy some services from somebody else that has a bank account, you can pay in gold and gold can go from your account to their account. And that costs nothing. Right. Because you could do that now. I mean, if you have an account at a bank 
and a friend of yours or a relative has an account on the same bank, you can just go online and immediately transfer some of your account balance to that other account. You just have to have their name, you know, their account number. You could transfer it. You'll be able to do the same thing at my bank with gold. You can do it with dollars too, uh, but you'll be able to go with gold. So there is no reason to have cryptocurrencies, right? Because they don't solve any of the problems that they're marketed to solve. They create bigger problems. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is improve the wheel, right? We can improve gold by marrying it to the internet, by using modern technology to have a modern gold standard, to make gold more readily accessible and usable as a medium of exchange. And believe me anyway, once we have hyperinflation, the dollar crashes, we're going back on a gold standard anyway. Fiat currencies are going to be backed by gold. So it's going to happen. And, and so that's going to destroy the 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 uh, the reason for having bitcoin because supposedly it's 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 a hedge against these currencies but when the currencies are backed by gold again then you won't need the hedge peter how can we get inflation if the government won't allow the official numbers to show it well look we have inflation whether the government admits it or not and yes the cpi has been reverse engineered uh to hide the effects of inflation and what happened was back in the 1980s, it was the Boskin Commission. And what these guys decided was that inflation, the CPI was overstating inflation, which it probably wasn't. And so they changed the methodology for calculating it so that they would get a lower number. So that was the purpose of the re-engineering of the index was to produce a lower number. And that's exactly what they succeeded in doing. But, you know, this is like, you know, hiring the fox to guard the hen house. I mean, would you expect the fox to do a good job? No, he's going to eat all the hens, right? The government uh, creates inflation, but they don't want people to know about it. So they're going to hide it, right? Or my, you know, my dad used to say it's like, you know, hiring the mafia to do a survey about crime. Is the mafia going to say, oh, we have a lot of crime. We need more police. Of course not. The mafia is going to say, oh, there's no crime at all. We don't need any police. Everything is great, right? Because they're, they're the criminals. So the government is... Uh, producing inflation, the last thing they want is a report card that acknowledges it. Uh, so they they create inflation, and then the CPI uh, is still a low number. And then they actually point to the low CPI as proof that we don't have enough inflation, and now we need more. When if we actually had an honest CPI, we would see that we have more inflation uh, than we think, and we don't need more. We need less. But you know what? Yes, maybe the inflation will be 10%, and the CPI will be 4%. Still a big number. Maybe the CPI, the real inflation rate is 20% and the government number is 10%. But 10 is still a big number. See, if we get really high inflation, it's going to be impossible to hide it. And then at some point, if they keep jiggering these numbers, you know, substitution, hedonics, I mean, at some point, nobody is going to believe these numbers, right? When it's so obvious, like, and when I did this video, and I've talked about it, I did this video um, back in 2013, and you can still see the video on my YouTube channel about inflation. And I looked at the CPI and I picked newspapers and magazines. And the reason I picked them was because according to the CPI, the price of newspapers and magazines had gone up by 30% from 2003 to 2013. I think that was the period. So it was a whole 10 years of, um, of inflation, right? Or, or uh, price increases. And, and so what I did is I actually looked at newspaper and magazine prices going back from 2003 
to 2013. And it wasn't hard to do. I just went on the internet and I Googled, uh, you know, Time, Newsweek, Businessweek, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, right? From those dates. And I looked at the, um, the front page and you can see the price just written right there, right? So I took the prices that were written on the covers of, I think, the 20 most popular newspapers and magazines in 2003. And then I took those exact same newspapers and magazines in 2013 and looked at the exact numbers that were written on those covers. And I compared the two numbers. And instead of a 30% increase, I got about 130% increase. So somehow the government put 130% increase in and a 30% increase came out. So somewhere in the process, right, that 100% got lost, got hedonically adjusted away uh, or substituted away. And somehow the CPI was able to take 130% increase in the price of newspapers and magazines and report it as just a 30% increase. So if that's happening with newspapers and magazines, it's happening with everything. Right. So the CPI is BS. But as the inflation rates really get big, then nobody is going to believe it. Right. I mean, if if the, if inflation is really four percent and they're saying it's two percent, it's kind of hard to, 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 to notice that they're wrong on a year to year basis. I mean, over a longer period of time. Yeah, you could probably tell that they're wrong. But part of the problem is when you have the economy lowering prices. Right. And when you have so much stuff being outsourced from China, I mean, that's one of the reasons we've been able to keep prices down, even though the government has been inflating, is more and more of the stuff that used to be made here is now made in China. And, you know, one I've made this point before, but I'll make it again. But this doesn't get factored in. Like, let's say, you know, 10 years ago, you used to go to a, a local store, right? And you would buy, let's say, a piece of furniture, right? And it would be all assembled. And they would just deliver the furniture to your house, right? And you you would buy it. But now you don't buy that furniture, uh, you know, from a store locally. You buy that furniture, let's say it's a desk or whatever it is. You buy it from China or you buy it on Amazon that gets it from China. And it comes to your house in a box. And it's in like, you know, 100 pieces. And you've got this tiny little instruction booklet. And you got all these screws and things like that. And it could take you two, three hours to put this thing together. And then when you're finished, you, you know, you, you got some leftover parts. You're not even sure if you did it right, but let's say you spend three hours putting something together, but that's not in the price, right? So the price of the desk has gone down, but when you used to buy it, it was already made. You didn't have to spend any time assembling it. It was there. And now maybe it's a little cheaper or the same price, but it takes three hours of your time uh, to, to put it together what is that desk really costing you in terms of the value of your time that you now had to spend? So a lot of this stuff, happened. none of that is in the CPI. The CPI doesn't factor all this. But one of the ways that we've been able to keep prices from going up is by importing stuff from China that we used to produce ourselves. And that has kept the cost down. Now, of course, the cost would be even lower had we not created all this inflation and we still outsourced all of our manufacturing to China, then maybe that desk would be way cheaper. Instead, it's the same price or whatever it is. But the point is that all that extra labor from you assembling it yourself, none of that is added to the cost 
but it should be, but it's not. So the whole CPI is really a fraud. But when the, the inflation numbers are so big that it's so obvious from year to year, I mean, if inflation is actually 10% or 20%, if it's really that big on a yearly basis and the CPI still says 2%, right? I mean, no one's going to believe that, right? And so the real inflation rate is going to end up being factored into decisions, not the bogus one that the government, uh, you know, reports. Next question from Lance Bowley. What will you say if the SPY hits 330 by the end of the year? Will you admit that gold was an inferior investment? If uh, the SPY, well, let's see where it is right now. So it's at 282. And what if it goes to 330? Well, what if it does? I mean, it depends on where gold is. You're saying that I have to admit that stocks are inferior to gold if the S&P goes to 330. Well, 330 on the S&P, I happen to have my phone here and I'll pick up the calculator. So 330 minus 283, where it is now. So that would be a 17% increase from now until the rest of the year. And maybe you can throw in some dividends, not very much. In fact, most of these companies are probably canceling their dividends. So let's call it, maybe you get a 17 and eight, let's say 18% factoring in your dividends. So an 18% gain on the S&P. All right, well, if gold is up 20% during that time, then why would I admit that the stock market is a better investment than gold? In fact, I believe if you get the S&P 500 up 17% from now till the end of the year, my bet is the price of gold will have gone up by more than 17% between now and the end of the year. So gold would end up being a better uh, investment than, uh, than stocks. Now, of course, if the S&P goes up 17% and gold goes up 20% or 25%, gold stocks could go up another 100%, maybe more. So I think under that scenario where you think that the S&P is going to be at 330 by the end of the year, I think that you'd make a lot more money if instead of buying the S&P, you just bought Newmont Mining, which is the only gold company in the S&P. Or better yet, you know, buy some of the gold stocks that are not inside the S&P, right? That, that, that are smaller cap companies that I think have even more upside. And again, the best, best way to do that is through my, uh, my fund, uh, your Pacific uh, Gold Fund. Uh, anyway, I am now at the last question uh, for the podcast which is good. I'm kind of getting tired here. It's about a minute and an hour and 36 minutes. Last question is from why I smile. Okay. Uh, from the Eurozone, high money velocity leads to big inflation. Why has the money velocity been so low since 2008? Will this change? And look, I've got a lot of questions on money velocity. I think a lot of the reason for the low velocity is how the money entered the economy post the 2008 financial crisis how it all went through the banks and how it went to asset prices, bonds, stocks, real estate. Uh, so you didn't get as much of the new money uh, moving into uh, Main Street. It was on Wall Street. And remember, we had a rising dollar. The dollar rose substantially from its low. In 2008, the dollar was at an all-time record low. Summer 2008, dollar index was down at around 71. And now it's around 100. So we had a substantial rise in the value of the dollar. And so that kept consumer prices in check as asset prices rose. 
And so since we didn't have this big spiral in consumer prices, we didn't have the pickup in, in velocity. Uh, and, and so we didn't get that extra boost uh, to the inflation rate. But remember, we still had inflation other than in financial assets. Prices still went up. They should have gone down. Instead, they went up. So that's still a, a bigger increase. And we continued to outsource and we continued to find ways uh, to, uh, you know, to uh, import goods in order to keep the prices down. And the strong dollar is what made that possible. And so I don't think any of those factors are going to exist going forward. I think the dollar is going to fall. I think the cost of imports are going to rise. A lot more of the money that is being created is going directly into Main Street. It's not going through Wall Street. And in fact, that's going to continue. Uh, the idea that, hey, you know, it's the people that need the bailouts. I keep hearing this. You know, we shouldn't be bailing out the companies. We should be bailing out the people. Why? Nobody should get bailed out. People shouldn't be bailed out who own stocks and people who shouldn't be bailed out who don't own stocks. Because when you're bailing out a company, you're not bailing out the company. You're bailing out the people. You're bailing out the shareholders. You're bailing out the management. They're just people. All bailouts are for people. Companies aren't real, right? They're intangible, right? It's the people that own them that are getting bailed out. And nobody should get a bailout. I don't care what they own or what they don't own. People who are stockholders shouldn't be bailed out. People who have jobs for companies shouldn't be bailed out. The people who are customers shouldn't be bailed out. Nobody gets bailed out in a free market economy, right? People uh, are fend for themselves. And if they can't, then they go to for private charity. And then people voluntarily help out people who are in unfortunate times. And that will happen. And you know what happens too? If you're a landlord and one of your tenants who's been a really good tenant and now he finds himself in bad circumstances, you might say, okay, you can don't pay me rent for a month or two. Pay me when you can. That happens. That happened during the depression. That will happen. I mean, people, you know, landlords know, hey, if I kick this guy out, I need a new tenant. How long is it going to get me to find a new tenant? If you've been a good tenant, I mean, hey, you know, I know, you know, hey, you just thought you just have an unfortunate situation. You know, if I kick you out, the apartment could be vacant for three or four months and then maybe maybe six months. How do I know? And then I might get a new tenant in there who turns out to be a disaster. If I've got a good tenant in there and he just has some difficult times, maybe OK, so don't pay me for a while. People will work things out. You know, I mean, yeah, this I mean, during the Depression, my dad tells me, you know, doctors still came to your house. Doctors made house call back then. If you didn't have money, they came for free or they took whatever you could pay them, uh, whatever you pay me, you know, pay me. I'll take it if you don't have the money. I mean, people are working with one another when when times are tough. Right. In a free enterprise economy, people have a way of working things out. We don't need to interject the government. Whenever the government gets between individuals in transactions, it just screws it up. So let people work things out themselves. Let employers and employees work things out, customers and businesses, landlords and tenants. Let everybody on their own, without one one-size-fits-all government bailout by a printing press, let the free market function and let individuals you know, work it out themselves. I mean, just trust in people. Right. Trust people to do the right thing. Uh, and, and even if you think they're doing the right thing for selfish reasons, they're still going to do the right thing. And it's going to be much better than having the government do nothing but the wrong thing and end up destroying the economy, destroying the currency. You know, I hear people saying, but what would you do, Peter? Let people starve? 
No, people aren't going to starve. Nobody starves under capitalism. They starve under socialism. If you think we're preventing people from starving now, where do you see what happens when we destroy the currency and food becomes so expensive that a lot of people can't even afford to buy it? 